So, so Clarence, I want to ask you a little bit about the core of this book is really uh, about resilience and resurgence. And that's, you know, I took those, those words right from your book. So coming to Indigenous identity and learning and teaching from, uh, from that place. And one of the things that you say early in the, in the book, and I think you repeated it a couple of times, is that it's ordinary to be broken. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was very much struck by that. And maybe because I, I work with a lot of young people who are sure that it is not ordinary to be broken. So can you tell me a little bit about coming up with that phrase and if it's been a, a kind of touchstone with you with uh, teaching and with healing? When I started finding a pathway back to culture, I wanted to invest time in myself. So I I went and got my grade 12. And then from there, I went into college. And that's where I got that phrase from. One of my professors, Max Solis, he was always talking about brokenness and how it's okay to be broken. And then he would go a bit deeper all the time. And he would say, you know what? Like, Like, really, everybody is broken that we meet. Some people will talk about their brokenness. Some people won't. And that's where he left it. And then that really got me thinking of how that impacted me and how that brokenness weighed on me, how I carried that for a very long time. So then I just started to add to it that it's okay to be broken. Once I came to terms with my brokenness, the shame was lifted and I was able to start working on things that didn't belong to me, that things that were handed down to me from my ancestors. Yeah, and that's really my, my next question, that North Wind Man is your story, but it's also a generational story. I appreciate the amount of research and the amount of discussion about previous generations that gets put into the story because it felt so unusual to have access to all those stories of generations. Uh, certainly, um, previous generations that been to residential school, lived through it, were, were very much broken by that by that experience and had to live with the the results. And I note that along with that research that there's archival material from uh, your father that were, was recorded by people at, uh, is it at Algoma University, is that right? Yes, yes. And I thought to myself, what, like, what a find, what a, what a research find and what, what an important piece of this story for you and ultimately for the, the readers as well. Can you say a little bit about finding that material? Yes, that was something just that just happened. The spirit connected with me. I went from my heart to my head. And, and then when Seth and I were writing, I remembered that my dad did a recording with Algoma University back in the early 90s. Algoma University used to be Shingwok Residential School, and that's where my family went. So I reached out to them, and we were thinking, how good would it be? It would be awesome if we can try to weave my dad's voice into this book somehow. So I connected with them, shot them off an email. They said, uh, be patient. Within a couple of weeks, they replied back to me where they did find the, the cassette tapes. And they said, we're going to buy a digital machine to transfer the tapes into a file, and then we'll send those files off to you. Saying that, Tannis, it took me six months to listen to those files. Um, when I got them, I, I sent them off to my, to my sister, to my children, to my half-brother. I had to wait until I was in a best place that I could be to hear my dad's voice again, because I didn't hear it for over, over 20 years. And, and when I heard it, it was, it was a very emotional time. When I heard his story, there were so many parallels, but I could feel the love. 
I could feel the love and things really started to make sense when he shared his truths to us. Uh, indeed, indeed. And, and of course, some of those truths are, um, are very hard to read. And I, I can only imagine how hard they would be to listen to. I'm just going to toss it to Seth for, for a minute and ask you, Seth, about what it was like to hear uh, this voice of this person that you had been writing about, assisting Clarence in, in writing about. So he was becoming a character in the story. Then all of a sudden, it's one more step into the reality of the character that uh, Clarence's father was. How was that for you? I think I heard the recording before we started working on chapters about Abby Kakaji. But I remember listening to it for the first time, and it is it is very powerful. It's a very powerful recording. It's very, I don't know what the term for it is, kind of sublime, like having this access to this story from the past. He's speaking so openly and honestly. It's a well-done interview. I, I was impressed because the interviewer doesn't say anything. She just says, yeah, we're just letting people tell their story. And so... You know, you, you can just say what you want to say. And Abby launches into it. And it's I think it's like two and a half hours long of him talking and just telling, sharing about his life. He shares teachings. He shares stories. So what we ended up doing was I transcribed that interview. And then Clarence and I went through it and we chose some excerpts that we thought that it would fit well in the book because of these parallels or just because it was a powerful little story that Abby shared. And for our book launch, we shared the recording of one of the excerpts that we put in the book. And so people could hear Abby's voice. We can share that with you now, too, for this podcast. That would be great. <laughs> I, I'd, I'd love to hear it. Do you want to tell us what we're going to hear? So this is Abby. He's, he's sort of reflecting on his experience in Shingwak Residential School. He actually went to two different residential schools. One called Horden Hall, which is in Moose Factory when he was younger. And then he moved, he was transferred to Shingwak Residential School, which is in Sault Ste. Marie and now Goma University. So he was just reflecting on his time there, sort of after speaking about it for a while. He shares about this experience of his grandfather coming to visit him each year at the school. So that's what this is. Okay, this is Abby Kakaji in 1991. But the hardest thing was the loneliness of not knowing you had a home. I, I, I can remember my, my grandfather paddling 900 miles every year to come up to the school fence. And this was around, oh, it would be September, just before September. Yeah, the end of September, he would show up. I could see him coming over up the embankment, and he walked towards the fence. Seen this huge, tall man, he was well over six feet. <clears throat> and he had the smell of the bush, of fire, of uh, animals to, to him. And, and he would pass through the fence, a little piece of dry meat. He wouldn't talk much. He would just look at us, and he'd try to touch us and feel us. And he would disappear for another year and did that for six years. He'd come up every six years. Every fall, just, just happened. So we would line up against the fence, the four of us, and then he would talk to us in Indian. And sometimes my uncle would come with him. 
then he would leave again for another year. But the experience of of that Indian school was was basically loneliness of, of wanting to get away, of of wanting family, of, of wanting uh, to go home, to, to have a place called home. Clarence, I want to come back to the earlier parts of the book where you talk about growing up in your foster family, the Ryers, and what it was like to be raised in that family where you where you knew you were a foster child. You write at one point about sort of the humiliation of being featured in the Today's Child feature in the in the newspaper with you and your sister, and also about how you learned to be a child in foster care because um, up to then you know, it was sort of impossible for you to live without the tension of, you know, who was going to take care of you, etc. Can you say a little bit more about that? For sure. That time in my life, Tannis, was full of a lot of whys. It was full of a lot of whys. Uh, my sister and I, we became crown wards when I think I was two and she was four, moved into a bunch of different homes. We were even adopted once and then put back into the system until we finally ended up at the Ryers. They had five children of their own. And they were doing the best that they could do with the decisions that they made at that time in their life. You know, back in the 70s and 80s, you know, um, Mennonites, yeah, they were, they were adopting Indigenous children. They were adopting non-Indigenous children. They were taking in foster children. And they were doing really good things. The thing about that is that I, I was never giving any cultural exposure at all. The children's aid knew that, that my sister and I were Indigenous. You know, it, it even says in our records. So growing up there, there was a lot of wives. I knew my sister and I were connected. I knew we didn't belong to that family. So I went looking and that just started me getting me thinking at a very young age. Where is my family? Why don't I have a family? Where's my parents? Like, what is going on here? So then I started running away. I started running away, but I don't think I was running away. I think I was running too. I was running to find that sense of belonging. I was running to find that community. I was running to find that missing piece at a very young age. And I figured it out when I was about six or seven years old, that something was drastically wrong. And growing up on the farm, I never got hurt. I never got abused. I had a lot of fun. I did things like all kids do. I think the worst thing that I ever did is that I found out that skunks have feelings too. I think that's that's the worst thing I did. And, and skunks have defense mechanisms too. <laughs> they certainly do. <laughs> so things change for you in your early 20s when you meet your father. Mm. The episode in the book seems to come out of the blue. You're not searching actively for him, but your sister finds him and you all meet. That's that's quite a moment, right? And I think about that moment when you're talking about you're finding a way back to culture and your father's role in, in assisting you with that. That was quite the experience. My sister was a punk rocker. So she used to go to places like the back door and um, back in the day, back in the 80s, I'd stay away from there because uh, that wasn't my scene. My scene was more metal and heavy metal. Saying that, a story came together in Toronto and it was relayed to my father. And he found out that uh, my sister was living in Kitchener and that she was possibly a punk rocker. So he drove down here, found some punk rockers right away, asked them if they know who she is. And within minutes, it all came together. 
it was uh, a Saturday night when I was 20 years old where she gave me a call and said that she's coming over with someone. And I, I said, who? And she said, our dad. And I went, yeah, whatever. And she goes, no, I'm coming over with our dad and I'll see you in about 20 to 30 minutes. And sure enough, uh, she walked through the door with our father and there was no denying it. We look like him. But he apologized straight off the bat. But I was I was in this stage of caution. I was in this stage of, of disbelief. So I said to my dad, I said to our dad, I don't know whether to hug you or to punch you right in the face. It's great that you're here now. But where were you? Where were you? Uh, and then all those whys slowly got answered. 